You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams of the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Alex West. Mr. Alex West is the founder of a nonprofit called One More Wave, and we're about to talk about that. He has some involvement in the watch world. But first, Alex, welcome. Thank you so much, Ariel, for having me on your uh, podcast. So the the joke, again, which I think you brought up the first time, is that you have um, a, a, a lot of work you do for this charity you set up called One More Wave, but you live in a landlocked city. How'd that work out? <laughs> that is a great question. I'm glad we're getting to it right off the bat. So I, um, I was living in San Diego when I founded One More Wave and I was running it. But at the time when I retired from the military, it didn't, the nonprofit didn't have enough money to hire me on. So I had to get a job. And so I took a job in Nashville and turned over the reins to another friend of mine, Kyle Bucket. And um, when I was out here in Nashville, I just felt that pulling back towards One More Wave. So I ended up resigning um, from that job. And I came back to One More Wave, started out volunteering again, and then finally um, took over the helm about a, a year ago. That's, that's interesting. And I, I, before we talk about what One More Wave is and does, I want to talk more generally about the world of nonprofits, especially from your perspective as a designer, as, a, as, as someone who has military experience and someone who, you know, as, as an entrepreneur is trying to figure out, you know, how to find their way in the world. When, when did it become interesting to you to be involved in nonprofits, you know, as a business entity? Sure. I, I was uh, a, a surf instructor for the Naval Hospital, uh, Naval Hospital Balboa in San Diego. And they had this incredible program where they had adaptive surfers, meaning there's amputees and burn victims, spinal cord injuries. And as I was um, volunteering and helping those guys and gals out in the water, I just started noticing that there's all of these adaptations that could be made into these surfboards to get them better performance so they could get back out in the water and actually getting performance out of their surfboards. And so as I was volunteering for that, I, I thought to myself, yeah, man, I'm, I should probably start a nonprofit, <laughs> you know, but I was active duty in the military. So my, my schedule was pretty tight. And then uh, one day I had a, an aha moment. I was with a Marine who was about 25 years old. He was missing his leg below the knee. And it was a beautiful Southern California morning. And I looked at him and, and he was smiling. I was like, yeah, man, it's beautiful out. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, man, it is beautiful out, but that's not why I'm smiling. I'm smiling because when I'm out here in the water with everyone else, no one is staring at me as the guy missing a leg. And the moment I catch a wave, there's no more pain. And so I figured at that moment, that like I said, that was my aha moment. I'm like, that's it. Let's do this. <laughs> I have to do this. And so drove home. And at the time, there was, a, there was actually Borders bookshops were still around, our bookstores. And I went into the nonprofit section. And I immediately got overwhelmed by all these incredible books on these incredible, huge nonprofits. And I almost left. And then I looked at the corner of my eye and I saw this little yellow book. And it was, I pulled it the, out. The dummies collection? Yeah, yeah, I pulled it out. And it was <laughs> how to start a nonprofit for dummies. I was like, you know what? I can't leave empty handed. So uh, that was back in 2015. And so, yeah, b bought the book, went home, cup of coffee and a highlighter. And that was the beginning of One More Wave. And, you know, it's interesting because the ideas you have, the, the actual good work you want to do comes after so many steps of preparation because it's funny, there's so many opportunities to do good today, but from an economic perspective, it's not easy. 
uh, even just finding a job at an existing nonprofit is weird. So many people have to start their own. And sometimes, again, I have a little bit of a legal background, but I wonder, like, are there too many nonprofits or should nonprofits be easier to work for? Like, wouldn't you have rather found one that had already existed and be like, hey, let me do my thing for you? You know what? That's a great, uh, a great question or a great point. Uh, part of that nonprofit for dummies book was, you know, if there's a, some advice and I'm totally paraphrasing here, but you know, before you start a nonprofit, look around and see if someone else is doing what you want to do and then, you know, start volunteering for them. And then after a while, if uh, you feel like you can do something different or it's not what you like, then then start it. So, so to answer your question, there is a ton of nonprofits and the actual turnover rate or the failure rate of nonprofits is actually really high. I'll and, bet. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, especially in a time of uh, the pandemic, it's been hard enough just for successful nonprofits. And I don't mean just in the space that that we're in with the, uh, you know, veteran surfing kind of niche, but all nonprofits are kind of struggling because, you know, people obviously aren't giving ex- extra money and people are, you know, corporations are, you know, trying to keep people's salaries going instead of just giving away uh, large donations. That's very interesting. So there are a lot of tax incentives, of course, but, you know, getting the operating income is is a challenge. And it sounds like there's more nonprofit mouths to feed out there than there is money moving around for them, right? There, there really is. And where we're at in the, the veteran surfing nonprofit, you know, that's so niche. So there there is several of them um, up and down the California coast, one in Hawaii. They're all over the place, all over the coast. But um, there's a few that I think are, are very successful and they've been around a while. And, um, and but there is several that I've known in my, you know, six years of doing this that, um, you know, that have failed also. So it is tough. Now, how did you first get the funding to do anything. So let's you started your nonprofit. And again, I'm talking about this a lot because I think there's a lot of people really curious about nonprofits. You know, a lot of these start very organically. How did you sort of get started as a nonprofit in the sense that you're like, this is something that's going to have some momentum, like this might actually work? Yeah, I guess a short answer is just good old American elbow grease. You know, when when I started out, I didn't have any any really that much money. Um, my wife was going back to school, as I mentioned, I was still in the Navy, but it was you know San Diego is a pretty expensive city to live in, so we were I didn't have ex, excess money just to throw at it. So what I uh, started in the beginning was I um, I have a background in graphic design, so I made a T-shirt. And then I just started slinging them anywhere <laughs> at work, at, you know, at, at small pop-up shops. And then I also started walking around a bit, not walking around, but going around town and talking to anybody who would listen. And it started out with like rotary clubs, PTA meetings, if you can believe it, um, barbecues, whatever it took. Um, if somebody would, would hear me out, I would, I would, you know, give them my pitch. And over time, it took about six months uh, for us to be able to afford all of our, you know, legal fees and filing fees, you know, get a website up and running, and to create our first uh, surfboard, which was, you know, it, that took a while for us. But um, I'm, that's one of my proudest moments of the nonprofit is, uh, you know, that finally getting it off the ground and actually helping one of our vets. It's hard, and I'm sure you had to develop like uh, an increasingly effective elevator pitch. I did. I, I certainly did. And, you know, I didn't have, you know, I was, I did 20 years in the military. So I didn't have a background in, in sales or I didn't have a background really in business. So a lot of it was just, you know, trial and error, giving it my best shot and, um, and just trying to be as genuine as possible, making sure people knew that there was a need for it out there and that these vets really needed our help. Okay. Here's a question. Cause I, I don't, I don't have personal military uh, experience. I know there's a lot of veterans and things like that that have to figure out, you know, what to do with their life after their service time. 
What does the military today, especially the the branch that you came from, what kind of stuff does it prepare you for best that would be sort of in the civilian world? That's a great question. Well, you know, the military, a lot of people don't may not realize there's so many different jobs in the military. You know, there's everything from tech to, you know, driving a tank <laughs> to, you know, be, being in the Navy on a ship. But uh, my background was in the, and so let me back up. So some of those people, if it's like tech, some jobs really do transition well. But the job I had as a, as a Navy SEAL, it was kind of, there wasn't too much Navy SEAL stuff to do, you know, that I could, I could really apply. And there wasn't any kind of, um, you know, skills other than maybe some leadership, um, that outside of that, there was not a lot of it. I just had to learn on my own, or I, I got a lot of mentors. I had some really incredible mentors. I, you know, just ask for a lot of advice, just with a lot of humility, if anybody could help me out. And, um, you know, I had a lot of people just say like, sure, let's grab a cup of coffee. What are your issues? And I would lay them out and they'd give me some basically some business mentorship and uh, thanks to them um, that really added to the overall success uh, for us early on. What type of availability is there to stay in the military for a Navy SEAL? Like, are there, you know, opportunities to climb the ladder, go into leadership, or is it actually more, uh, more interesting for people to like see what to do in the private sector? I'm just, I always get curious how that works once your, you know, your, your term is over is, is there a lot of incentive to stay in the military? There is. And, you know, the era that I was in uh, was during, you know, when the, the height of both of the the global wars on, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. And so there was a need and there was even, they'd give signing bonuses for guys to stay in. Um, however, when it came time, you know, for me to retire, I, I was given some options for more signing bonuses and all that. But I just knew that my time was up. I, I'd been, you know, I joined the Navy when I was 18 and I was 38 at the time. So my whole adult life. Was, 20 years in the military, yeah, huh? Yeah, yeah. Is that, is that like full pension? Uh, it's a uh, 50%. So it's a, uh, it is when you first can start receiving a pension, but the longer you stay in, the more, uh, pen, the higher, the higher pension is. See, I know, see, I know nothing about it's this. Okay. I just know that there's like, you can get a full <laughs> retirement in the military through a lot less years than maybe at like, I don't know, a Procter and Gamble or something. Probably. Yeah. But you know, I, I, I have no complaints about it. Um, uh, you know, with the pension and where that came in was during, uh, when I resigned from my job here in Nashville, it was on February 28th, 2020. So as everyone knows a couple of weeks later is when the pandemic really came in full force. So when I was getting, when I resigned and then I was looking for a job, it was like, everything was like, like screeching halt. So, so my pension though, kept me going and, you know, able to throw, you know, pay, pay my mortgage, pay uh, grocery, you know, the basics. So I, I'm very thankful for that, especially being able to collect it at a, at a young age. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, Military is such a big part of the American experience, and you don't really realize that until you go to other countries where they have smaller militaries or a different relationship with military. And you don't really get how so much of the American culture and character is shaped by our relationship with the military. And it's such a big industry. There's so many jobs related to, to the maintenance and the creation of, of everything from the machinery and the technology to all the, the, the facilities and things like that. Like it's, it's a major, major industry. It's such a big part of who we are. Um, but it's, it's interesting that, that, I don't know, maybe there's a big, bit, of, bit of controversy around it, but a lot of people who have spent time in the military don't seem to, to talk about it as much anymore. Like the perception of like the veteran telling stories like, oh, there's the old battle stories again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's such a big part of who we are as a culture, but our conversation about it seems to be skewed into a lot of very narrow topics. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, um, I, you know, especially in recent 
you know, the recent weeks and months, you know, it certainly has been, uh, and it's been tough for a lot of veterans, you know, with the, the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban and all of that. So yeah, it, it yeah. has been uh, tough for a lot of veterans out there. Um, but you're right uh, as a country, you know, cause I have friends, um, in the different country special forces, whether it's the UK or Australia, and they always mention like, wow, you know, it, it's so different being in the military or being a veteran in your country because people actually put a veteran, you know, they, you know, I wouldn't say put them on a pestle, but they give them a lot of respect. You know, you go to get on an airplane, the first thing, you know, it's first, it was a first class and, you know, military <laughs> members first aboard or something like that, you know, so it's uh, as a culture, um, I, I think it's incredible and I'm thankful and I know I don't want to, yeah, I'll speak for a lot of veterans. I think we're all very thankful that, you know, no matter what the, the country has supported us and perhaps that stemmed from uh, the Vietnam, you know, where a lot of the veterans came home and it was a different uh, experience for them. And I think the country, hopefully, and I think they have, or we have learned from that. There are so many charities out there dedicated to soldiers and veterans and things like that. Do you feel like you're sort of part of a, an elite you know, group, or is this sort of like a whole industry of nonprofits dedicated to supporting veterans? You feel like you're part of this big group that has some, um, you know, spokesmanship and some support, or do you still feel like, you know, very much a, a, a little fish in a big pond? I feel a little bit of both. I mean, that's kind of a safe answer, but I, I do feel like we're a little fish because at the end of the day, there's some juggernaut nonprofits that do incredible work for veterans that, you know, have Super Bowl commercials, if you will. They're that big. And, and, you know, we're not like that at all. We're, we're kind of, you know, boutique in a way. And so, uh, but I think that allows us to be super creative and super flexible. And if we were that big, we wouldn't be able to be producing the types of surfboards and the equipment and one-on-one -on -one experience for the veteran. Because I've always said, you know, I'd rather help 10 veterans properly than 100 veterans half-assed. You know, when you were talking about Navy SEALs and surfing and stuff like that, I thought to myself, I wonder if surfing is like actually part of the required training. <laughs> I know this is probably wrong, but in my mind... If you're like a Navy SEAL, your job is to like secretly emerge on the beach at night, you know, in yeah. some in some hostile territory. Yeah. And it seems like part of the training would involve surfing. Like how many how many of the Navy SEALs you've met can actually surf a depth? Like I, I cannot surf, but I love being in the ocean. No, that's okay. Um, I, I would say a lot of guys can, but it, every SEAL, the big thing that's different from the SEAL teams versus maybe the Army, other special forces like the Army Green Berets or Rangers is our um, our ability to get in and out of the water. You know, we're, we're really trained um, extensively in combat, you know, diving, swimming, as you mentioned, over the beach. Um, there's all sorts of, it's all very maritime um, heavy for us. So that doesn't mean that everybody's a SEAL, but uh, there's most SEALs have surfed and, and a good majority of them um, do surf. And because we're also, the places you're stationed are you know, San Diego, uh, Virginia, like right on the water, uh, Virginia Beach, same thing with not known as well for surfing, but it, also Oahu, Hawaii. So there's a ton of surfing. You know, you, it's not a surprise where you'll see seals try to sneak in our <laughs> sneak in uh, surfboards and some of the cargo that we fly out. It's not all the time, but when they get a chance, if you're going on a training trip trip to let's say Guam of all places, you know, certainly there's going to be a handful of surfboards that get smashed in there with all the gear so that you can take advantage of that South Pacific swell. Now. My understanding is that SEALs are oftentimes small elite groups that go in, try to be undetected. Do these tend to be like early, early missions before there's a big operation or are, are SEALs actually doing missions all the time, even in, in heavily active zones? 
The, yeah, a big thing for my experience, at least, was we were going after, um, you know, uh, terrorist networks. And so we would go in, let's say it was in Iraq, you know, we would go into a certain city that we had some intelligence, there'd be bad guys there, or maybe a leadership, because we, and we mm-hmm. try to kind of like, uh, if you think about the shows, The Sopranos, like with Tony Soprano, like we're, we're, we're going after Tony Soprano, but to get to him, you know, we might have to knock out a couple of his lieutenants. And then from there, and when I mean knock, I mean like, you know, capture or kill, but um, right. not to get too deep on a, on a watch podcast, but we would go after, after those guys that would hopefully lead us to the, the larger kind of kingpin. And, uh, and w- while by doing that, you're disrupting the greater area. So then when the conventional, like let's say the Marines or the 101st airborne from the army, if they come sweeping through, the enemy is all kind of disheveled. I've always wondered how much better prepared are you than a lot of the combatants you're up against. Because we imagine the SEALs as being like super heavily trained, the best equipment, you know, just really sort of top-notch professionalism, all regard. And then, you know, the others, like no other military is as well, you know, trained as U.S. military. Like, is it is it sort of a walk in the park or is it like no matter what, you have to be like completely, completely careful, anything could happen, everyone's sneaky, doesn't matter their level of training. Yeah, I, I would relate it to like a prize fighter, like a boxer where, you know, there's a boxer that's been training his whole life and he's got, you know, world-class trainers. He's at the top of his game. However, whoever he fights, there's still a punching chance. He knows that there's a puncher's chance that his opponent could knock him out. And that's kind of how how I viewed it. Um, you know, we had the best technology, the best training. Um, I, you know, I had the best mentorship uh, anyone could ask for. And I, basically a lot of that has to do with money. And there's a ton of money spent on us. And um, however, you know, certainly even though we came out on top more times than not, there's always a puncher's chance where, you know, a kid who's never shot a gun could, you know, pick up an assault rifle and just spray at us and, you know, and hit one of the guys and it it happens. And so uh, while we are, uh, you know, certainly at the highest level of training along with some other, um, you know, Western allies, it's still, there's a puncher's chance. Like you could, right. you know, guys have, I've had several friends who are just at the top of their game and, and just, um, you know, it just ended by, by just that a puncher's chance. Yeah. It's, there's just sometimes just dumb luck in the wrong direction. It's, it's, it must be so nerve wracking. And it's funny you mentioned about the money spent on you. I remember years ago now I was England at the Martin Baker factory where they make ejection seats. Mm. And it was interesting that a big part of the discussion of why even develop an ejection seat is that so much money went in the training of these elite pilots that it was actually a good investment to try to save their life yeah. <laughs> because trying to retrain <laughs> another one would take so long, take so long, it'd be so much money. It's like, okay, we'll have a, it was sort of, so rather than it being sort of a humanitarian thing, it was like this sort of investment um, protection device. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it is true that, that, a lot of money and a lot of time goes in, in into you and your colleagues. And, and, and that's, I guess that's always been the case. But, you know, the, the military really does treat you guys like, like assets. And of course, there's good and bad to that. But when it's good, it's great, right? Right. Absolutely. I mean, when it's, when it, everything's going great, it's, it's unreal. You know, there's, uh, and that's what made, made us so good. It was, was that, that money or the assets that was poured into us so that we could take, you know, bring in, you know, at first skydiving instructors, they would bring in team Red Bull, <laughs> you know, for uh, shooting instruction, they'd bring in world champion shooters and not to try to make us world champion shooters, but to, to take us to the level we were at just one step up. And also the technology we had with all the different night vision and, and all the all the bells and whistles, the greatest money could buy, 
compared to you know our, our enemy, let's say it was the Taliban, and they were uh, you know very bare bones and very um, very light, but um, certainly they were formidable in their own in their own respect. I mean, we we can't go into it because I know there's a lot of secrets, but it just sounds like you've experienced some amazing stories that that sound great. And gear was such a big part of your life. Um, you know, the the average watch lover has a, an obsession with military watches for a lot of good reasons, and there's a lot of different types of watches. Does the average soldier have an obsession with watches and gear like maybe we assume that they do? Uh, well, absolutely. So um, I would say with with watches, just like anyone has their friends, you know that that are kind of you know big into watches. Um, the same thing in the SEAL teams. There's guys that were really into watches, and um, but then also when it came to the gear, everybody was. Now I wouldn't say everybody, but the majority of guys were really fine tuning their gear, just like a let's say a carpenter would really fine tune his his toolbox. It's like you know it's all custom all sorts of little tweaks here and there that are perfect for him. But um, yeah. So the military allows that. I didn't realize it was like, you have to have the stock stuff or this is your gun. You can customize it the way you want. Absolutely. Yes. Well, at least where I, the, I was, the units I was, I was at, I was fortunate to be at. Uh, as part, some of the military doesn't allow that, but where the units I was at, they allowed you to do I mean, you could, yeah, you could take everything to the next level, tweaking everything. We, you know, we would wear, um, you know, regular from our boots being, you know, the best boots you could buy at, uh, you know, at REI <laughs> and, instead of regular military boots all the way up to our, our, you know, night vision and thermal image, all sorts of just technology and guns and all that. It's, it's very, very tweaked, like trigger jobs on your guns, all these things that. Can, can you expense that stuff? I always wondered like who pays for that? Cause like you want to buy a fancy watch or other equipment, um, you know, I mean, you're you know, you're 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 a soldier. You're not you're not paid like a CEO, but right. the military can you know recoup some of those things. Like, how far can you take that expense account? It depends on on what your unit you're at. Uh, the unit I was at, they they took care of everything, and uh, you wouldn't have to pay for any of any of it. And um, but some, some I can't do this mission without a Rolex. I just, yeah. I just can't. Well, yeah, and it's funny <laughs> you say that because uh, you know the the UDT underwater demolition team, the Frogmen. Um, you know, they had Rolexes, which they were issued and, uh, and also some of the early seals in Vietnam, but we never got those. We, we had some, you know, Casio G-Shocks and Sun 2s and some, uh, Garmin kind of the first generation of, right. uh, you know, GPS watches. So, you, okay. So you had, so you had some cool stuff. Okay. So flash forward to now and you not just have experience with, you listen Ardan, which you've worked with at one more wave, mm -hmm. but some other luxury watches and things like that. Like, would those have been great while you were serving or you're like, okay, those are too fancy. They look cool, but those would have been a liability. They, they would, in my opinion, you know, you might get, you know, ask 10 guys, you might get 10 different answers. But in, in my opinion, I think they might've been a little fancy. Now let me hold on for there. I would have loved to have had a nice watch and taken it on some missions just to say that I did it <laughs> so that I could have <laughs> the stories to go with it. However, um, you know, it, it's, it, they're maybe not as practical um, as some of the the watches that are, you know, maybe I hate to say it, you know, here we are in a high end watch, you know, podcast, but you know, something like a Casio G Shock, where it's like less is more. It's super simple. When the bullets are flying, you know, that's you just need the the most. I mean, let's stuff. be honest. The G Shock is probably the most popular watch on the soldier's wrist <laughs> in the world. I, I I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it's so basic. You know, it, you can do a stopwatch, you can turn a light on, and you can do an alarm. And, and it's, it's durable, it's dur you dude. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. for three hundred bucks, you can get a watch that is like totally reliable. You never need to worry about it. You know, a lot of them are solar powered, so you don't have to worry about battery. Like yeah. Casio. 
is rare among watch companies because it still makes a highly relevant tool that is used by the mainstream. And I know I can, I think about this way more than most people, but that's a real big distinction. Like you listen to Ardan, love them, amazing stuff, but these are right. pure luxury items. Absolutely. There's no like, there's no, there's no professional out there be like, this is the only tool that'll do the job <laughs> for me. Like right. that's, you know, maybe a politician, right? But other than <laughs> yeah. that, this is not a tool watch, even though they make tool watches. And so Casio does have a lot of enthusiast watches, a lot, but they make a watch that is worn by doctors and rescue people and soldiers and just all kinds of active people around the world because that's the best thing to make sure that you have the time on your wrist. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It's just they're they're just less is more. You know, it's very it's ruggedized and it's um it's very practical. You can you can dive it. Um, you know, you can jump it, you can, you know, get in gunfights with it. You can go to the, you know, go to the bar. You might want to switch out your, if you're going to the, if you're, if you're a single guy, you might want to try to, uh, up, up your game a little bit, but you know, certainly you can, um, yeah, you can do everything with it. I'll tell you the first time that I learned that, uh, soldiers actually really like watches. And this was, this was at an event with Breitling several years ago. This is at, in Reno and this is at the Reno air races when they, when they, uh, sponsored that. Cool. And they had, they had the actual Top Gun school out there from you know, the San Diego area. Mm-hmm. And this was, you know, the, the, the students that were learning to be fighter pilots and things like that. And Breitling had been supporting them as a sponsor for a while. And the funny thing is that you had, and again, this is sort of this watch nerdery stuff. You had the Top Gun watches from Breitling and then the Top Gun watches from IWC. And mm-hmm. IWC had the movie license of Top Gun and Breitling had the actual military license, and those were totally different things. <laughs> so two different brands had Top Gun things. But anyways, that's besides that's the cool. point. So I saw the Top Gun, you know, there's instructors and students there, whatever year that was. And one of them stood up to sort of say thank you to Breitling. He was wearing an aerospace. And he made this little comment about how, and he was smiling the other time. It was such, such a big smile on his face the entire time, how these were good instruments that were well-made, but he's like, and they look good too. And he made it very clear that the, the style, the sort of um, status element of the watch meant a lot to him. And you could see that in other people where there is very much an interest in the status element of watches yeah. um, through military people. It's, very, it's such a big part of it. You know, it's not just bankers and CEOs. Mm-hmm. Military people love showing off their success through their watches, and I just wanted to do you agree that that's a very real thing? I do agree. Uh, you know, it, you know, we used to always joke around in the in the SEAL teams where you know rule number one was look cool, <laughs> and so so I think um, what what that perhaps what that uh, pilot was saying is you know it looks good. I mean, obviously it's it's incredible, like the mechanisms and everything, and it's a uh, it's a high end watch, but it's certainly yeah you know something to be proud of, um, especially when you're you're in camp camouflage and you're kind of everybody kind of looks somewhat the same it's a, a way to certainly stand out and um and express interesting your, express so no, that's an amazing point you're making because you're right the military is supposed to be about creating a more homogenized look mm-hmm. you as an individual are not supposed to stick out as much and right. so what you do is you find those areas where you can express yourself you're like okay i can't choose my shoes or my clothing but i can choose my sunglasses and my watch so those yep. are the things that I'm going to use to express myself. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. You're, you're so spot on. And that's, that's a really common thing. And I'll, I'll tell you how this works in a different context. In the Middle East, where men have to wear the traditional you know, local clothing, mm-hmm. 
Where are they going to show off who they are? Their watch is one of the few things. They more or less have to wear a homogenized outfit, a uniform, if you will. Right. And it's only when they sort of raise their wrist to, to, you know, to shake your hand, you're like, oh, what you got wearing? Yeah. You know, in California, we take for granted the fact that, like, we can wear whatever the hell I want. In fact, it's expected <laughs> not to blend in. If you're not wearing some weird everything, what's wrong with you? But most of the world is more conformist, or what I call uniform culture, where a watch is still so important in expressing your individuality. Yeah, I, I, I had not thought of that um, in the Middle East, but you're right. I do recall uh, seeing a lot of gentlemen wearing nice watches with their you know, local galabeas or you know, or the local garbos. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I had not thought of you know, correlating that with like the military. That is the same, same exact thing where, you know, in a lot of, like I was mentioning, you know, we would kind of switch our gear up, but the majority of the military is very kind of strict on, you know, like you said, very, hum- you know, very uh, similar uniforms and haircuts and all of that. But one way that you could really express yourself certainly is through, through a watch and, as you mentioned, sunglasses. And, and being able to show off to other people in your same organization appears to have a big value in, in the military or otherwise. Um, and it is created such a strong love of watches, which directly benefits the watch industry. So I just, I like to explore the psychology about how this all works, because again, you know, you're, you're seeing it more from the sort of nonprofit perspective and the soldier perspective, but you have to appreciate that a military story is such a big part of so many of the new watches that come out. Like so freaking many watches have some military this, some military that. If you don't actually tie it back to the military experience, the stories become almost useless. They're just marketing. You know what I mean? Absolutely. No, that makes complete sense. Like you can make watches for pilots all day long, which means nothing unless pilots actually like watches and care about it. Oh yeah, the, yeah. If that's then the cool, yeah. Once you get the buy-in from that community, whether it's pilots or seals or you know whatever, you know, once you get that buy-in, yeah, then it kind of it's like dominant. Like everybody's going out there trying to get a you know get that watch. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch Store. Right now, the Blog to Watch Store features a line of t shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow-in-the-dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Now, presentation is such a big part of America's armed forces. You said yourself, cool. And I think it's, it's bigger than, than just sort of a simple desire to like stand out. I think the military in general likes presentation and, and all of their combat and everything they do. Do you think sometimes there's a little bit of a, uh, a detriment to that where – you know, more guerrilla style forces, low budget ones have been able to get away with ugly looking things, mm-hmm. dirty looking things, simply because sort of the American forces are too proud to stoop to those levels. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that, that's certainly, I mean, 
um, when I, to go back, when I mentioned, you know, the rule number one is look cool. Um, you know, certainly that's the thing, but it, it means also like wearing your gear. So your gear looks sleek and properly, you know, put on, um, you know, your guns clean, all of these like little things. However, um, you know, there's always a flip side to all this technology. Um, you know, you know, less is more not to keep going back to that phrase, but where maybe, um, a guerrilla fighter with just an AK, like a rifle, um, at the end of the day, like he's got less things that can go wrong with his equipment where maybe the SEAL teams, they might have all the technology and everything like on their side. However, you know, just electronics break, especially when you're dealing with salt water or, you know, high desert heat. Um, you know, there's all things that could go wrong. So there is, there is something um, special about, you know, like guerrilla warfare where you don't need much, just the population to be on your side, more so the population than, than your gear. Uh, and sometimes the population with like a SEAL team or special forces unit, you can't always, you can't buy that population that the, that the guerrilla owns. So it's, you know what, I, you know, I blame, I blame sports. Let me explain. Let me explain. Sports is a very militant thing, right? And I and I think about it like this. The American military goes in, it's like, okay, we're gonna play football. We assume we're gonna play against another football team, which is gonna yep. be playing by football rules and football strategy. So they get out there and they're like the best possible uniforms and the best possible strategy, and the guys are super strong and just everyone's prepared to play the best game of football. And all of a sudden, like a basketball team comes out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's actually, I, I had never thought of it that way. And it's so funny because I've been in that space forever. Um, that is so true. I, you know, cause, and, uh, we expect people to be like, you know, um, you know, everyone else in, let's say San Diego or New York, you know, we, we expect them to be like that, but the reality is of course they're not going to be like that. And, uh, we cannot mold other, you know, cultures uh, and, you know, to look like ours, they have to want that. And usually they, they don't want that. They just, because they're not, you know, they're, let's say they're an Afghan, they, you know, they want, they trust the Afghans. And lots of times they're also in, you know, it's very tribal, whether it's in Afghanistan or Somalia, Yemen, there's all these places where it's, you know, lots of times you go clan or tribe first and then the country. So that's so complex for, let's say a bunch of Americans from Ohio and Nebraska, you know, they might be the best trained and the, the you know, the very sharp guys and, uh, and equipped. However, that they're, it's going to be really hard if, if ever to be able to succeed in that environment. Because they have to learn politics in addition to combat. Absolutely. Yeah, they really do. And there, and there's so much culture. No, even if guys are super savvy and they're very apt you know, they have high aptitude, it's still so much to try to learn to fit in. And at the end of the day, they, no matter what, you're still an American and on foreign soil. So they're not going to, you know, trust you with like a grain of salt. Uh, with yeah. a and a lot of the problem is, and again, you know, years ago, if you were an American in a lot of foreign places, you were, you were very welcome. And then, you know, starting, I guess, you know, in the early 2000s, a lot of the perception changed and traveling as an American, I remember for business a lot, like really, really uh, uh, was a different thing. And so the, the sort of high regard for Americans in an international sense is something that we may have taken for granted for too long. Then we recognized we actually have to, you know, do a little bit more. Like uh, the world cares that we're Americans a little bit less. What do we do about that? Yeah, I, I that's a great question, and um, I, I don't know what the right answer is for that. I, I think, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if it. I'd be lying if I had the right answer. <laughs> it's just <laughs> no. interesting things to think about because, look, I mean, I'm. This is the weird thing about me. I, I grew up in, in Los Angeles, very liberal minded. 
But I also grew up loving military stuff. Like I was obsessed with like everything military from the movies to learning about the, the vehicles and stuff like that. My father was an avid military history person. He could name me the generals of like every, every general in World War II to the Civil War, wow. like crazy stuff. And so I grew up this sort of like dual sort of liberal mindset about, you know, the world needs to work together, but with this like really deep understanding of military history and stuff like that. And it's made me a lot more sympathetic to sort of the military America than I think a lot of sort of like coastal city people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I, I, I don't shy away from thinking about it because there's a lot of value there. And I think that it's unfortunate sometimes that um, a, a military sort of, you know, uh, ethic, uh, you know, gets, gets sort of demonized. A lot of bad things come with it. But, you know, they joke about America being like world police. I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, you know, the world is an animalistic place. Force rules. Yeah. America being in charge with our, you know, relatively good ideas about things has been positive. You know, the, the American concept and promoting that through sheer strength is not a necessarily bad idea. It's not going to win you friends everywhere, but it's still a very viable way for keeping world order. Like, no one has a better alternative for keeping world, world order than what we've done. And I'm not saying we haven't eroded a, a lot of things and we have to maybe get back to some principles, but the American concept still seems to work. And despite all the, you know, the moaning about it, and again, it has flaws, no one has proposed a better alternative. Yeah, I, I would, no, I, I hear what you're saying. And, you know, maybe uh, perhaps in the future, we just, uh, we go in a little bit better red and uh, we don't always have to come, you know, what was it, uh, Maslow, or if, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And that's kind of what, what <laughs> that's kind of what, uh, what, you know, the American military has been. And, and, and I would say perhaps in the future, you know, we look at it more like, okay, how can we, how can we still have our influence without, you know, Black Hawk helicopters and dropping bombs and soldiers and this and that? Like, uh, yes, I think you're right. There, there is a need to have our finger on the pulse of what's happening on in the world, but I just, think we could be smarter at it. And I, I'm not the right guy. Here I am, good idea fairy, just throwing around ideas. And But um, but, I, it, I, but you, you are part of it because you're a graphic designer and you will take the imagery that is important to you and you will help share it with other people as a way to convey messages. Right, correct. Yeah, and I think, so to answer your question, I, I think, yeah, I mean, if we should learn from what's been going on in the last, you know, uh, I guess 20 years from that and then just realize that we can probably still have our influence, but maybe not just, you know, with a hammer and a nail. Maybe Well, uh, Hollywood has always been the soft military. We've been exporting American cultural values around the world in the form of films and TV shows and things like that. Like this, that's the thing people don't understand. Like even though Hollywood is a business, it's also one of America's strongest weapons. Yeah, it is. And uh, it's funny you say that because I remember being in the early days uh, of Afghanistan and being at bazaars, which are kind of like a, an outdoor market. And there would be all these pirated <laughs> movies and, uh, and it yes. was all American movies. Like you you name it, it was all there. And a lot of uh, the local Afghan soldiers that we were with, you know, they already knew who like, you know, Rambo was and they knew, you know, they knew everything. And, you know, even they didn't speak English, but they could quote lines from those movies. That's it, who you want to be the first people in is our movies, our actors, you want them to have grown up with that, that stuff. So for 20, 30 years, they've been seeing that before they ever see you. 
Yeah, and I'll never forget. I remember if if you recall the magazine Maxim, you know, so it yeah. had some, you know girls with racy you know pictures and you know some articles. Yeah, whatever, it was but, like very soft core but suggestive. Yeah, and you know back in the day, and so we um, guys would always be passing those around, and I remember we would give them uh, a lot of times to the Afghan soldiers um, just to be like, and they'd never <laughs> it blew their minds, and they were always coming back like, hey, do you guys have another <laughs> like you know what do we have to do to get another one of these? And and it was it was funny, but it, it was you know sitting back and you're thinking like wow, this, this guy, his whole life has never, hasn't had my experience. And, uh, you know, and here, this girl, this woman's, you know, probably some you know, really good looking model with skimpy clothes on. And, you know, certainly that's going to blow his mind, let alone like a young American's mind. But like, if you're an Afghan, you've never seen anything like that. It's, it's certainly culturally it, it shifts and they were, they wanted it. It wasn't like, get that away from me, even though it was an extremely uh, strict country, you know, Muslim country. Now I'm going to, completely changed the topic here, sure. going back to the veterans and things like that. You've worked with a lot of veterans now, and there's always this mm -hmm. question of what veterans should do. What do you think veterans should do with with their particular experiences and limitations and, and, and interests? What do you think is a great thing for American veterans, especially disabled ones, to go into, especially if, if society was a little bit more cooperative and opening? Right. That's great. You know, what a lot of veterans had while they're in the military was purpose. And and what I would challenge other veterans, and I'm speaking to myself when I say this as well, is that what you should find something that is your purpose. Don't just do something that's, you know, easy, like the first job that falls into your lap. There's some incredible programs like the Montgomery GI Bill, um, all sorts of college programs. You don't have to go to college, of course, but trade schools. And uh, I would just challenge, because I have seen it, when things go bad for a lot of veterans, they just kind of, you know, they, they don't do much. They just kind of, you know, they might collect disability and they just kind of hang out and they just kind of get into this. They get stuck for lack of a better term. And who then, should be listening to them? They obviously have something to say. Who would benefit the most from listening to these types of veterans? Who would be benefit from the guys that are stuck or just. Yeah. For, forget who the guys want to speak to. In your opinion, who would benefit the most from being around them, listening to them? Like, would it be school kids? Would it be soldiers before they go into combat? Like, who should be listening to the stories um, and, and, and giving the purpose to these disabled veterans? Well, that's a good question. Uh, it depends on, you know, the, the veteran. If, if a guy is certainly struggling with some mental health issues, I might, you know, he might not be the best for, let's say, school kids. But um, but there might be some, some good veterans that would be. So it just would be a case-by-case -case situation where uh, I think there's some really motivating, uh, motivated uh, veterans that have had some incredible you know, stories to tell that mm -hmm. I think could certainly motivate companies, whether it's someone as a keynote speaker. Um, also, a lot of veterans bring a lot of, um, you know, leadership. You know, lots of times you have a Marine who is maybe 20 years old, 21 years old, and he's in charge of eight Marines in a massive gunfight. I mean, that's crazy, you know, where it's, you know, he's 20 years old and he's, you know, making these calls. So later on in life, you know, when it comes down to a leadership challenge, you know, he might, um, you know, he, he, it might not phase him too much where it's like, well, I was leading, you know, men in combat at, at 20 years old. So I, I can handle, you know, maybe a, a work in the, some supply chain issue um, or whatever. So, it might so the be. question is in what spheres of business and civilian life do we need highly decisive people? Yeah, I, I would say, well, um, 
I don't know. It, it depends. My, my, ex- it's hard. It's a hard, yeah, question. it's a hard question. I don't know my, you know, my experience in the nonprofit space, a little bit in the security space. Um, I, I think veterans are a good fit in, in the security space also, but, um, I, I don't know, I guess it's a case by case because even though all the veterans are, you know, they're cut from, they're not all cut from the same cloth. Certainly when you go in the military, you're all, let's say in Marine Corps green or, you know, Navy blue, whatever it might be. However, everybody's different. So, um, it's just different when you never know what, I, I don't know. I, I wish I could have a better answer. Ariel. No, it's okay. Why does the military itself not make more funds available to organizations such as yours? It obviously does help for people that they're trying to help. It seems like a relatively low cost thing. Uh, maybe there is, but it seems that if you have to go to all these other places, the, the the logical source doesn't have as much resources as they should for you. No, they don't. And it's actually uh, a, a active duty service member can't legally take a, a, a gift or a grant from us. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to like throw people under the bus, but when we certainly, it gets gray where if a veteran is certainly struggling, I don't care. Like we're going to make sure he's taken care of. I don't care if he can't, you know, accept a gift or not. And if the people want to come after me in the military, that's fine. But, but the thing is, you're right. They're not, we don't get any money from, from the military, even though we do support a lot of active duty military. But, um, I, I wish there was more, but at the end of the day, you know, we, we've been doing just fine hustling the way that we do. That's just kind of the, the way we know how to do business. Now, in terms of the actual help that you do, I think it's very important to sort of hyper-focus on the good that comes out of what you do. You find individuals who need a little bit of boost in life. You do, I guess, what would be called surf therapy. Mm-hmm. You, you build a customized uh, surfboard designed specifically for someone's unique disability um, that allows them to go out and do surfing with you. What is the the actual good? What's the measurable outcome? I know everyone's obsessed today with measuring things like that. Like like a disabled person goes in, and what what is the output of your program? Well, I'll tell you. You know, we make as you mentioned, um, you know, world class surfboards for our veterans. But what I how I can measure it is we have every third Saturday we have chapters a chapter in Hawaii, one in San Diego, and one in North Carolina. And every third Saturday, there's upwards of three hundred. Um, veterans and volunteers surfing at those at those meetups. At, you know, not there's time changes, of course, but on that third Saturday. So when I see that, where people are showing up and they're just you know telling stories, they're like excited about life, they're excited about surfing, and that transcends, in my opinion, to their life also. They're better husbands, wives, they're better employees, and um, as I think that's that's a huge win right there. Um, and also just, you know, knowing I, I've seen uh, some of our veterans start off where they've never surfed before. And then all of a sudden now they're like surfing better than, than I am. <laughs> and it's like, well, how did that happen? It's like, well, because they put the time in because they love it. And so they found their purpose um, and they found some therapy within the ocean. So, Alex, we're talking about One More Wave as a nonprofit and nonprofits overall. And, you know, there's a lot of ways you can scale what you're doing. Um, cause I believe that this is something you want to do, you know, not only full time, but to, 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 grow, but what are some of the sort of inhibitions to growing, especially financial? Um, and, and, and if you were able to grow, what are some of the sort of, you know, things you would do or where would you take one more wave? Well, one of the things that we're looking to add in uh, next year is something called learn to surf where we make the equipment. We're the only organization that makes the equipment for veterans right now. And we have these community meetups, but we don't have actual clinics that teach veterans to surf. So that's going to be one of our main initiatives for 2022. Um, 
Yeah. Also, I'd like to, um, we only have three chapters right now. We have a big kind of mentorship program that we're going to be giving to our chapter leaders because it's almost like a franchise when they're they're out, let's say in Hawaii. We want to make sure that they're in tune with exactly what's happening uh, with One More Wave headquarters in San Diego, which they do, but you know we owe them that. So professionalizing our organization is very high in our priority, this Learn to Serve program. And we've also had a pilot program we're working on where we teach veterans to shape their own surfboards, hand shape them, and then to go surf them. So there's a few things that we're um, kind of looking forward to next year that um, I, I really hope get up and going. Now, in terms of the surfboards themselves, it would appear that there's actually a potential business for people that may not be veterans but do want to surf and who are disabled. Is this a cottage industry that might be a for-profit thing? That's a great question. So we, we get approached by people all the time asking us to make surfboards for them who aren't veterans or just, or maybe they are veterans. They don't need our a grant, but they, um, you know, they want to buy a board from us because they tell us things like, Hey, if I'm going to buy a board, if I'm going to spend, let's say $700 on a surfboard, I'd rather spend it on one more wave board so that you guys can you know recoup some profit out of it. And that doesn't fall on deaf ears. And we've explored some options uh, right now, there's some talks with some other uh, potential partners of of maybe branching out. But um, for right now, I don't want to get the cart before the horse. You know, at the end of the day, um, that that might be something. You know, creating our own surfboard line, but I I don't know just yet. The, the the all the conditions have to be set right for that to happen. There's probably a lot of liability issues there, keeping costs down, manufacturing, a lot of expectations, volume, like. That's a whole. That's it's a whole other kind of business. Absolutely, it would be like almost a startup uh, within the organization. And and my biggest fear with that, even though I get so fired up and like think how cool that would be, but my biggest fear would be that if it takes any bandwidth away from the actual veterans we're currently supporting, then I don't want us to do it because that means like I don't want a veteran to be like, man, nobody, because you know, no one more way if they uh, give me a board and they're pretty much like, hey, take care. You know, I, you know, nobody, nobody ever checks in on me, but, um, I, I don't want to, I don't want that veteran ever to think that we don't care about them and we're not there to support them. And if, uh, if, you know, that surfboard line, it just has to be right. A long, long answer, but, uh, it just, all of the things have to be done right. And it's, um, you know, it certainly could be something in the, on the horizon. You know, it seems to make sense. I'm thinking about like things that would make it so that you should do it and things that make it so you shouldn't do it. One of the things that seems applicable is how easy it would be for a competitor to come in and do the same type of thing, right? Like understand how to make these, understand how to actually match them to the person, understand how to like design them. If that's a truly difficult bespoke thing, you might be able to ha- charge a premium, you know, like a few thousand bucks per board or higher uh, because it's so hard to replicate. But if if maybe like a big a big board maker could come in and just replicate it easily, then it might never be worth it because you'd have to do such high volumes that it'd be such a headache. You know what I mean? Right. You know, and that that's definitely true. You know, there's just because we make you know world class surfboards doesn't mean that there isn't a bunch of world class competitors out there. And so there there's without a doubt, um, you know, big name brands could certainly come in and you know copy kind of what we're doing and replicate it. Uh, and, and and probably knock it out of the park. Um, but one thing that we have really broken trail on, though, is these adaptive designs with the for our research and development kind of uh, department, where we've made like leaps and bounds 
um, progress on surfboard designs for single, double, and triple amputees. And uh, not just to get them surfing a wave, but to get them surfing big competitive waves. And so, um, you know, while there's and there's nowhere else in the world that's doing it like we are. There's nowhere else in the world that has made as many adaptive surfboards as we have. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, that can't be copied. <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean that another organization can't do it. But currently, um, we're kind of the guys for the adaptive surfboards. Now, for a regular surfboard, certainly, you know, we can make a beautiful surfboard, but so can so many different organizations make a beautiful surfboard. Another another idea is the patent route, and that is you take certain designs or processes or ways of customizing something, and you create a couple of patents. The nonprofit invests in that, but then the nonprofit owns these patents, and then you can license these patents, and the income of licensing the patents gives you operating income and the ability to do more surfboards for more people. Yeah, I think that's an incredible idea. I, I mean, that, that might sound more, uh, that might make more sense for us because it's not like the bandwidth, you know, as I was alluding to, I just don't want the bandwidth to get away from the veterans. But yeah, a patent, I, I think that'd be, that certainly could be something that we could explore. Again, it just, as, as a lawyer, you have to think about all the different permutations of doing this because sometimes the most logical, efficient thing is not the most obvious because it's, it's sort of seeing it from the side. Right. No, that makes complete sense. Universities do this all the time. I mean, universities want to patent things so they hire all this great talent, they give them research labs, they pay for their da-da-da-da-da. But mm -hmm. as you know, if somebody invents something while at a university, the university often owns a, a pretty big part of it because then they sort of milk it. These right. universities are themselves oftentimes nonprofit institutions. Yeah. So this is not unprecedented and it's, it's completely within the bounds of good business. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'd be all about that. And uh, I, I appreciate your advice on that. Uh, we haven't explored it out of total transparency. We, we've talked about it, but we just haven't had you know, deep talks on it. It's okay. Um, you, you, at some point, you'll have to have a board and there'll have to be some nerd like me on there bringing <laughs> these things up. Yeah, right on, man. I'll definitely be uh, giving you a call. Now, we only have a few more minutes, but I want to talk about you listening to Ardan. Yeah. Um, this is uh, sort of this is how we connected, right? This is a a, a luxury watch brand that that a blog to watch has worked with for many years, and you've worked with there. What have you learned about the world uh, by working with a luxury watch brand? Uh, what have you What have you done with them? Um, and you know what has what has that brought your organization? Yeah, the the you know the partnership has been has been really good. We we started in 2019, and we um, uh, co branded a watch. Uh, for them, uh, the One More Wave Dive Watch. And um, we've been doing, they've uh, hosted some fundraising events for us to help raise some money. And, um, you know, it's been interesting for me. I, I was never, I didn't have any exposure into, um, you know, high-end watches, but it's been really cool. Like people have been very gracious. They've, we've had some incredible donations. Um, we've, I've met a lot of really cool people um, like yourself, Ariel, and it's just uh, kind of opened my eyes to um, a different part of America that I was unaware of. What do you What do you sort of think about watches now? What have you learned about that? Do you have greater appreciation for it? Are you more of a watch person? Do you want to get more into this? Like, what have you learned about you know the world of products and you, you're a product designer uh, through these very high end, highly detailed, sometimes weird, but always kind of fun uh, items. Yeah, I I love it. I mean, from having a 
you know, you know, kind of an artistic graphic design background and also production background of surfboards. You know, I love seeing um, some of those watches, like the Freak from Ulysses Nardin. Like it's yeah. just so like these just out of the box ideas. I can certainly, uh, I'm impressed by the craftsmanship, of course, and um, I, I I love it. And I certainly would um, be in the market for for a, a watch, uh, perhaps next year, um, up my game a little bit. And where you know a couple of years ago I might not have, <laughs> but now. I, I can see it. I see where people can be so passionate about it, how they can express themselves through it, how there's the design, the engineering, everything that goes into it is uh, really blew me away. I, I just never had the exposure until we started working uh, with Ulysses Nardine. And, and, and since then, it's, it's just really impressed me. Have you talked to them about designing a watch? Because they might not necessarily say it, but it might be very interesting for you to des- actually design a watch. Um, and that be, you know, really sort of the, 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 the emphasis of sort of the next one, because the one that came out was the color version of something they did. But I imagine that, and, and this happens with most graphic designers, that's what I'm saying. It's like if you become a watch person long enough, all of a sudden you have a design. Yeah. Like that's the natural, like graphic designer meets watches, poof, eventually <laughs> original design comes out of it. I'd love to. I, if given the opportunity, I, I would love to, uh, you know, take, you know, throw my my name in the hat to to design a watch. Um, you know, certainly I I've yet to design a watch, but I've designed a lot of other things. So uh, I'd love that opportunity. It's not easy though. It's not easy. It's 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 graphic design meets industrial design. Yeah. One of the t- one of them is not going to give you enough skills. It's both of them together, because the industrial design means you understand how to make a functional tool and object. And the graphic design means that it's not boring. Right. Yeah. No, I, I'd, I'd love, yeah, I, I totally see what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. And I, um, you know, taking that into account, I, you know, certainly probably be asking a lot of questions <laughs> so that I wasn't just some guy who has, you know, experience on designing like, you know, restaurant menus and t-shirts <laughs> thinking that I'm going to be, you know, coming in, you know, wooing anybody uh, with a watch design, but um, I'm definitely open to the challenge. However, I know there's a lot, as you mentioned, a lot that goes into it from an industrial standpoint. So um, if given the opportunity and given some mentorship um, by um, you know, a professional that is, you know, truly d- designs watches. I think that'd be a dream come true. But um, you know, I'm I'm happy with the relationship now. So uh, w- whatever it takes. But uh, it would be cool to design a watch. I just I want you to, you know, because your particular experience, and I think you know a particular consumer. You've been out in the field. It's like you'd make the watch that someone with your background would want to wear because you've been in it. And I think there's enough enough other people that could resonate with that that would think it's cool. So you know what I mean? It's sort of like you bring a special perspective that no one really else has to this in this spe- specific combat experience way. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I I would love to. Yeah, just given uh, everything that you said, and um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I get, give me a shot. You know, I guess the worst thing that can happen is the design doesn't work out. Wouldn't be the first time that's happened, but uh, but you know, you got to try to 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 make it happen. Okay, cool. Well, everyone, this has been Mr. Alex West of One More Wave. You can check out One More Wave uh, to learn about all the good things that they do. I really recommend you do. They do some very good work, and, and it's really encouraging stuff. We have more, more information about that on Blog to Watch. Um, 
Alex, I'll let you say any last things about where you want people to check out your stuff. Yeah. Um, first off, before I get into all this stuff, if, if there's anyone out there who, who is a veteran who's struggling, you know, you, you're not alone. You know, I, I am you. The organization is you. We're made up of all disabled veterans that work at One More Wave. So, you know, reach out to us at uh, onemorewave.com. You can get uh, get to uh, our admin email there, or you can email us at admin at onemorewave.com. Uh, and for everyone else, you know, you can follow us. Uh, please follow us on social media, um, Instagram, uh, YouTube, and Facebook. We are the, the number one M wave. And um, I would just really appreciate if, if anyone out there knows of a veteran who's struggling, uh, make sure that they know that we're out there. And if uh, they're not into surfing, that's okay. We have a lot of veterans that reach out to us and they're not interested or they're in the middle of the country. We have a lot of connections to other veteran nonprofits that do things from fly fishing to mountain biking, whatever it takes. Just don't let them suffer in silence. They're not alone. Alex, thank you so much. And thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Superlative. Talk to you next time. Bye. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?